0: Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament. Week 38 for the week of September 17 through 23. We are in 1 Kings 17 through 22, Psalms 35 through 39. We are looking at the life, the ministry, and how God is using Elijah to call his people back to himself, to summon us away from ourselves, from the mess that we've got ourselves in, and to come back to him, and ultimately to come to Jesus Christ, right? So that's what we're going to talk about this week as we look here in chapter 17 about God's grace in sending Elijah to his people. 1 Kings 17, this is by Bradley Gray. Never tell me the odds on the implausible and improbable deliverance of God. He writes this, you are likely familiar with Ahab's reprehensible reputation, especially in conjunction with his ill-fated spouse, Jezebel, who together form a dynamic duo of devastation, unleashing havoc on God's chosen people. It is precisely in devastation, however, that the Lord of God chooses to work. That's his specialty, Indeed, one of the prevailing themes of the Bible remains God's utter disregard for impossible situations. Throughout the pages of Scripture, God displays a curious propensity for stacking the odds against himself, choosing to work with the small, fragile, weak, and foolish things of the world, rather than with what is generally considered strong and great and mighty. The God of the Word delights in employing the unlikeliest and most unexpected means at his disposal in order to accomplish his errands. There is perhaps no better example of this than the events which surround Ahab's coronation and Elijah's sudden proclamation of judgment in 1 Kings 16 and 18. Throughout these scenes, which relay the awful consequences of abandoning God's word, we are also privy to the uncanny and untroubled providence of God who revels in effecting his deliverance when it appears implausible, improbable, and downright impossible. The scene of Ahab's enthronement is appalling, to say the least. The political stability experienced under his rule is the only remotely positive remark one could make about him. That's it for the pluses, with the historian quickly situating the legacy of Ahab firmly in the negative. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And the historian hastens to elaborate on Ahab's distinctively prodigal weakness in the next three verses. This abridgment of Ahab's irreverent and irreligious tendency as Israel's king reads like a laundry list of idolatry. He not only invited paganism into Israel's midst, he invested in its integration into Israelite culture writ large. He plunged headlong and headstrong into ungodliness, fulfilling whatever impulse his heart desired. He married Jezebel, the daughter of a pagan king, who brings with her an insatiable enthusiasm for idolatry. He is seen serving Baal, worshiping Baal, and building an altar and a house for Baal, all of which, of course, are rampant repudiations of the decrees of God, forbidding such gross, idol worship. God's words were surely nothing but a forgotten memory at this point, with the sensuous liturgy of the church of Baal echoing in the streets of Samaria. Ahab's descent into gross sacrilege is characterized by a swift embrace of everything that is opposed to the Lord God of Israel. And it is precisely into this profane quagmire of iniquity and idolatry that the word of Yahweh is suddenly broadcast through the mouth of Elijah the Tishbite. And Elisha the Tishbite, who was one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. This is certainly among the most mysterious introductions to a man of God in the entire Bible, rivaled only by John Mark's introduction to Jesus in his gospel. We are afforded no lengthy account of Elijah's calling, no nativity or backstory, no miraculous appearance of Yahweh to an adolescent Elijah who then surrenders his life to divine servitude. In fact, the details we are given are vague at best, with the origins of Tishbi being inconclusive and the region of Gilead being a nebulous mountain district east of the Jordan River. According to the intrigue is Elijah's message. Adding to the intrigue is Elijah's message, which consists of a sinister prophecy of imminent famine, which ought to be understood for what it is, a direct challenge of Baal by Yahweh himself. Elijah's presence illustrates God's penchant for the unexpected as an obscure and audacious non-Israelite comes in the name of the God of Israel, pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel in the face of the king of Israel himself. He is an unlikely voice from an unknown place who comes bearing an unforeseen word from the Lord, which is Yahweh's way of saying, life, history, everything operates according to my word. Despite whoever else claims authority over our day, there remains but one whose voice holds sway over the ages. When depravity sits on the throne with vulgarity and vice walking the streets in open contempt, you can be sure that God has already readied his defense. When evil has its heyday, Dale Ralph Davis writes, and comes steamrolling over the people of God, he is not caught unprepared. Even as iniquity and idolatry seemingly rule the hour, Yahweh is never caught napping. Though his word can be tuned out, it can never be fully drowned out. His truth never fades, precisely because he is ever and Anon preserving a remnant to speak on his behalf. Ours is a God who makes a way where there is no way, sovereignly readying the defense of his word and his people when we least expect it. Without any additional detail as to how Ahab received such a judgmental word from such a little-known prophet, we are immediately thrust into subsequent events, with Elijah receiving further instruction from the Lord to hide himself by the brook Cherith. God's command to Elijah to get thee hence allows for fairly authoritative guesswork on the proceedings of the prophet's audience with the king, especially if one considers the king and queen's wholesale sanctioning of national prophets aside. With famine threatening the land and the monarchy breathing down his neck, Elijah retreats. The prophet does so according unto the word of the Lord, abiding in an inconvenient place for an undisclosed length of time where his only means of staying alive are a small stream and food via carrier ravens. This is just like God; He loves to operate in surprisingly and even off-putting ways in order to demonstrate his limitless sovereignty. His prophet has barely begun his public ministry, and already he is summoning him to the wilderness, wherein the Lord's word is upheld as the only enduring authoritative word. Elijah learned firsthand that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This indeed is a moment of divine interference in which the same authority which sustains the expanse of the universe is seen controlling the carnivorous stomachs of birds. The same word which reprimands kings and nations is seen restraining ravens in their flight so that the Lord's servant might find provision and strength in his time of need. The raven born strength with which Elijah was provided is surely miraculous but it also evinces God's mysterious strategy to accomplish his will. Despite openly announcing his allegiance to Yahweh alone, Elijah wasn't immune to the effects of judgment. He too was made to feel the desperation and deprivation brought on by Israel's rejection of and rebellion against Jehovah. The Lord's prophet is forced out of his station and made to subsist on water that trickled in Jordan's creeks and bread that fell from raven's claws. In like manner, our status as the people of God, baptized by faith, doesn't immunize us from suffering. Like Elijah, we feel all the grueling pains of grief and loss, adversity and sorrow. But even when we endure hardship, our strength is not cut off. Rather, it is sovereignly provided. Ours is a God who has never met a circumstance in which he was outmatched or outdone. He delights in showing off his ability to strengthen his sons and daughters through the most unexpected means. We should, says Davis, adore the scintillating creativity of a God who brings help to his people through channels they would never suspect. Perhaps for for you and I, it won't be raven-sent groceries, but there are no boundaries to Yahweh's sovereign watch care over us. He will stop at nothing to imbue his children with his strength, even if it means taking on flesh and retreating to the wilderness. As if to further corroborate this idea, the Lord brings Elijah to the brink yet again. The piddling brook from which the prophet had been drinking dried up, a consequence of the invective he recently delivered in Ahab's court. Yahweh, however, intervenes on his servant's behalf and tells him to make for Zarephath, which belongeth to Sidon. It is there that he, will, that he will find a widow woman who will be able to sustain him. This verse is loaded with details that are begging to be unpacked, at the forefront of which is the venue for God's next waypoint for Elijah. Zarephath was a bustling, industrial, Phoenician city known for its metallurgy and refineries. Of more consequence, to Elijah especially, however, was its position along the shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea, putting it deep within Jezebel's daddy's backyard. Thus, when Elijah, when Yahweh orders him to scurry to Zarephath, all the prophet heard was, Go, withdraw to enemy territory. Not exactly a winning strategy if one is attempting to avoid detainment and ultimately losing his head. But that's not all. Elijah's point of contact once he arrived in the lion's den was none other than a widow woman. One who was bereft of social standing, and one who was least likely to have a pantry flowing with milk and honey. Yahweh's suggestion that a widower would be able to offer Elijah nourishment and support was almost a contradiction in terms. Widows in this time period were associated with the poorest of means and the scantiest supply. In fact, the Hebrew word for widow is also used to mean desolate places. The prophet of the Lord, therefore, was told to find provisions in the house of one who was familiar with scarcity, even before a famine had laid waste to the land. Elijah finds the widow, just as the Lord said, and calls for her to bring him him some food and water. The widow, however, embarrassingly declines, indicating that she and her son are scraping the bottom of the barrel as it is. In fact, they barely have enough for one last meal together. Her situation was worse than hopeless. Such, by the way, were the real-world ramifications for Ahab's egomaniacal infatuation with Baal, which left his people physically, emotionally, and spiritually starving. This disconsolate widow, though, is greeted by a soothing, albeit surprising, word from the prophet. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Elijah insists that she make him a little cake first, and then tend to the growling belly of her boy. The audaciousness of this request abates at the prophet's reassurance that, her, that for however often she visits her pantry, her barrel of meal will never be depleted. Despite how preposterous these words appeal, appear, the widow uncannily obeys, and much to her surprise, the barrel of meal wasteth not, neither did the cruise of oil fail. For days on end, she and her gaunt lad were nourished by an inexhaustible supply. All of this is done according to the word of the Lord. The historian adds, making certain that none miss the point. Yahweh's words are always stronger. It might be a light thing for us to doubt such promises. It is one thing to say that God's defense is always ready and his strength is always provided and his supply is always sure, and quite another thing entirely to believe those things are true for you. In the severest of droughts, we are more likely to sympathize with the widow's sentiments that we be left alone to die. The abject hopelessness of the darkest nights of the soul can make TV dinners feel like last suppers. But in the end, it might actually be a good thing that we identify with this Phoenician widower, precisely because she is our New Testament certified proxy centuries later another prophet who had recently spent time in the judean wilderness would make his way to the same region of the ancient world and bring this entire moment full circle shortly after one of his first public appearances post-baptism post-temptation post messianic self-reference jesus identifies elijah's encounter with the widow of zarephath as one of the earliest indicators of the wideness of yahweh's mercy Jesus Christ alone, therefore, brings to bear the efficacy of these promises for you and for me. He substantiates the elemental truth of the gospel, which announces that the Lord God of Israel has also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. He picks the unexpected and the unlikely and goes to the unforeseen places, stacking the odds against himself in order that age after age might stand in open-mouthed wonder at his sovereignty in and over all things. Christ, who is God's word in the form of flesh, demonstrates once and for all that everything transpires according to the word of the Lord. There is no one besides this God. In Christ alone, your defense is always ready. In Christ alone, your strength is always provided. In Christ alone, your supply is always sure. It is Christ's blood-bought assurance of mercy and grace to help in time of need which stuffs the pantries of our souls with inexhaustible supplies of good news. So we see Elijah there, his ministry, how God takes care of him. He raises the widow's son. He confronts Elijah. We have that wonderful account of Elijah against the priests of Baal. And, uh, but then we have Elijah having to run away. And this is where he escapes to the Mount of God, to Horeb. And hears this still small voice. And this is the last thing I want to read here uh, today with you. This is called Getting the Still Small Voice All Wrong by Chad Bird. All my life, I have heard the phrase still small voice tossed about in a hodgepodge of ways. A preacher tells me, sit quietly, close your eyes. Now, listen for the still small voice of the spirit in your heart. A friend argues that a still small voice is telling him it's time to cut ties with his girlfriend. This voice, strangely enough, usually speaks a week before Valentine's Day. A nature lover says to tune into the still small voice of the universe in dancing leaves and whispering winds. Some of these are wrong, others are worse. With some notable exceptions, many who talk about a still small voice do so, one, without consulting the original Hebrew, two, without even referring to the part of the Bible where the phrase comes from, three, without looking at the broader context of the narrative, and four, without seeing how this voice is part of big story of scripture, which is focused on Jesus. So let's fix that. What I intend to show is that the still small voice in 1 Kings 19 is none other than the word of the Father the messenger of God, the voice of the Lord. In other words, the still small voice is another way of referring to Jesus, the Messiah. First, keep in mind that this voice is part of the longer story of Elijah, which begins in 1 Kings 17. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. Israel has sunk soul deep in idolatry, so Yahweh slaps them with a three-year drought. Near the end of his time, Elijah summons the good-for-nothing King Ahab, along with the citizenry, to Mount Carmel for a theomachy, a god fight. On this mountain, it's Yahweh and his one prophet versus Baal and his 450 prophets. The Lord proves he is the true God by incinerating an altar, the stones, the sacrifices, the whole kit and caboodle. The fire of the Lord fell and ate up everything. Baal is shown to be a satanic pseudo-deity. His prophets are slaughtered by Elijah. All Israel takes up a hearty Yahweh is God chant, a feast ensues, and a rainstorm signals the end of the drought. All's well that ends well, but alas, this does not. On the heels of Elijah's victory, Queen Jezebel swears to deep-six the prophet, so he hightails it out of the country. While he's on the run, we meet the central character in this story, the messenger and word of Yahweh. Deep in the wilderness, exhausted and despairing lies Elijah, but he's not alone. The messenger of Yahweh visits him twice. English translations routinely scrape their fingernails on the biblical chalkboard right, by rendering this the angel of the Lord. The Hebrew word is moloch, which means messenger. A moloch can be a human messenger, such as the one Jezebel sends in 1 Kings 19:2, an angelic messenger, or Yahweh's special messenger. We meet this special moloch repeatedly in the Old Testament. He speaks with full divine authority, calls himself God, is called God, and has the divine name in him. As many have argued, including myself in Christ the Key, this Malak is the Son of God, sent by the Father. The Son of God therefore visits, touches, feeds, and consoles Elijah in the wilderness. Then he sends him onward to Mount Horeb, or Sinai, where our story takes us next. At this mountain of God, the Son of God once more visits Elijah, only this time he is called the Word of Yahweh. This, too, is not an unusual designation for the Son of God in the Old Testament. This same Word ushers Abraham outside to count stars. He appears to Samuel and stands before him. Later still, he touches Jeremiah on the mouth. Finally, in what C.S. Lewis calls the central event in the history of the earth, the Word becomes flesh in Mary's womb. He first appears to Elijah as the messenger, next as the word, and as we shall soon see, as the voice of God. Here's how it goes down. Three phenomena blast by and shake Mount Horeb. A great and strong wind, an earthquake, and a fire. Each time, however, we are told that the Lord was not in these. Well, then what was he in? The Hebrew phrase is kol damama daka. A kol is a sound or voice. The word damama means calm or silent, and daka means thin or small. These Thus, various translations render it as a still small voice, a gentle whisper, the sound of a low whisper, or the sound of minute stillness. However, we translate the phrase. Don't miss the key point. It's a call, a voice or sound. Why is this important? Let's see. Before the wind, earthquake, and fire appear, the word of Yahweh asks the prophet, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' This word is the Son of God. Elijah gives him reason, gives his reason. Then immediately after, the still small voice, what happens? The exact same exchange takes place. Same question, same response. Only this time we read, there came a voice to him and said, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' To this question, Elijah repeats his earlier answer verbatim. First time, the word of Yahweh asked the question. Second time, the voice of Yahweh asked the question. To both the word and voice, Elijah gives the exact same answer. This voice, I would urge, is none other than the still small voice in which God had just located himself and by which he had presented himself to Elijah. Therefore, the Son of God first visits Elijah as the messenger, then as the word, and finally as the voice. And this is crucial. This is the same voice that followed the wind, earthquake, and fire. On Mount Carmel, the Lord did appear in fire when he burned up the sacrifices and altar, but not so at Horeb when he appears to his beleaguered, despondent, anxious, and frustrated prophet. Here, to Elijah alone, the Lord appears in the voice the Word, who is precisely what Elijah needed to have and to hear. At Horeb, the Lord shows Elijah and us that he is to be found in his voice, his Word, his Son. To seek the still small voice is simply to seek Jesus, to hear him, to receive him, to know all of God in him. Christ is the messenger who touches and feeds us in our own wilderness sorrows. Christ is the word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. Christ is the voice who calls out to us in meekness and love and passionate concern to come to him. Do you want to hear the still small voice of God? Listen to Jesus. And that's all we're going to do today. That's very good. Now, so think about that. As you think about the word of God now, you know, you're thinking about that. So all the time in Kings now that you're hearing the word of the Lord came, realize that you can't think about that apart from Christ. You can't think about that apart from Jesus because he is the word. He is the sermon, the message ultimately of God. So tie it together. Think about that. Reflect on that. Contemplate that. Meditate upon that. And let that guide and enrich your reading of the Old Testament. Thank you for listening to this. Take care. God bless.